This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. And this week on Face the Nation, familiar crises challenge this country and the Biden administration. One presidential goal down, 100 million COVID vaccinations in not 100, but only 58 days. But is the race to reopen outpacing the dash to vaccinate enough Americans in order to shut down the virus? Los Angeles County was the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak just two months ago. Now they're reopening. We'll hear from LA Mayor Eric Garcetti. Former Operation Warp Speed Chief Scientific Advisor Dr. Monsef Slawi and former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb will also be here. A shooting rampage in Atlanta puts the spotlight on an ugly consequence of the coronavirus, a steep increase in violence against Asian Americans, particularly women. Racism is real in America, and it has always been. Xenophobia is real in America, and always has been sexism too. We'll talk with Illinois Democratic Senator Tammy Duckworth about the push to pass new laws protecting Asian Americans from hate crimes. Plus, the ping pong politics of blame starts up again with a record number of migrant children crossing the southern border. President Biden has faced this challenge before as VP. Does he have any new solutions now? Do you repeat what Trump did? You take them from their mothers to move them away, hold them in cells, et cetera? We're not doing that. The top Republican on the Senate committee that deals with border security, Ohio's Rob Portman, is just back from the region. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. and welcome to Face the Nation. It is the second official day of spring, a season that brings with it the complications of warmer weather. This year, it's spring break and a spring surge in unaccompanied children at the southern border as they seek a better life in the U.S. We've got a lot to get to today, and we begin with senior national correspondent Mark Strassman. Despite a curfew and the pandemic, Miami Beach jammed with spring breakers last night until police fired pepper balls to break up the party. We've got too many people coming and we have COVID at the same time. Irresponsibility unmasked. To health officials, this is the other March Madness. You could hardly see the sand because all the umbrellas on the beach. And reverse COVID progress. Over the last two months, new cases and daily deaths both have plummeted. But you are seeing increases in number of cases per day. The so-called UK variant blamed for up to 30% of new infections. Viral spread. The TSA reports eight straight days of more than 1 million people flying. Relaxed COVID restrictions and resentful attitudes. 
like this mask burning in Arizona. We are the people and we're done putting a muzzle on our face. In the vaccine rollout, more than 43 million Americans have been fully vaccinated, over half of them aged 65 and over. But there's no vaccine for COVID-era racism. Three spots here in Atlanta became homicide scenes. Eight murder victims, six of them Asian women. The confessed killer could face Georgia's new hate crime law. And the murders spotlighted the increasing risk to Asian Americans. You bum. This 75-year-old woman yelled in Chinese. In San Francisco, she beat her attacker bloody with a stick. It's painful and infuriating at the same time. The hell is wrong with us? During the pandemic, thousands of Asian Americans have been assaulted physically and verbally. They've been attacked, blamed, scapegoated, and harassed. We cannot be complicit. It's a COVID contradiction. Vaccines have made millions of us feel more protected, but many Asian Americans feel more vulnerable than ever. That's Mark Strassman in Atlanta, and we want to go now to the West Coast and the mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti. Good morning to you, Mr. Mayor. You, Good morning, Margaret. You run the second largest city in the country. When we spoke last in January, it was the epicenter of a COVID outbreak. Now we're at 50,000 infections a day. Are you confident there is not a fourth wave coming? Oh, COVID makes you never confident, but hope really hangs on the horizon. I haven't felt this optimism in 12 months, Margaret. Uh, here in Los Angeles, we have a positivity rate of 1.9%, and we estimate that anywhere between half and two-thirds of our population has antibodies in it now, either wow. because of exposure to COVID-19 and vaccination. So it is a very different context than when openings happened uh, last July um, or when openings didn't happen in December, but we still saw uh, this virus burn through our city. So this is a very, very optimistic moment, um, and we're doing a lot of work to make sure that vaccines don't just get to all of our population, but get to every community as well uh, through a lot of equity programs. Dr. Fauci has praised as mm -hmm. some of the best in the country. Yet the CDC said this week that you have two variants of concern, uh, B1427 and 1429. How do you know that LA isn't opening fa too fast too soon? Well, you never know, but you have to follow the data. And the data is very clear. If we were a state right now, we'd have the second lowest positivity rate. And our state of California right now, I think, is the third lowest uh, case rate in the country. Um, I believe that some of those variants have burned through Los Angeles. It's the only way to really explain what happened in December and January when we still had the same level of closures as a month or two before and we didn't have that case rate. Um, so I think that our population really is much stronger. Our vaccinations are accelerating and we can take these steps. It was a year to the date uh, that we closed down movie theaters, restaurants, first big city in America to mm -hmm. do that March 12th. It was that date that we now reopened those places cautiously with the lessons learned, but it's time to get things moving. It's time to get our economy started. It's time to start hugging our loved ones again. And certainly that comes from getting a vaccine. On vaccines, um, since before the Biden administration took office, you have been uh, petitioning uh, Joe Biden for direct shipments to your city uh, instead of going first through the state. Why are they blowing off your requests? Well, we still keep asking as cities, and I want to praise the Biden administration where we've seen them hit their targets early. We've seen vaccines ramp up, a lot of support but for you the said, mega sites. You said a few um, days ago you teams. can't meet the president's target of May 1st, opening up all vaccinations because he's not giving you enough supply. 
I didn't say those words. What I've said is you give us more and we have double the capacity today. So I look forward to when those deliveries come in for us to be able to do that. And I think cities across our country, mayors have been very clear, are the right places to add more vaccines. And I'll continue saying that to our friends in the administration. I'll keep saying that, especially when cities are larger sometimes than most states. We're larger than 23 states. Right. LA County's larger than 45 states. Give us more, we'll get them into arms. Okay, so now you think you can hit that deadline. So California though, when you rank it by the CDC numbers that we looked at, it is among the most unequal states. I know you're talking about the city you control. But you also said in a speech at Harvard that many of these deaths could have been prevented if it had been distributed by zip code, really targeted. Have you talked to your yes. friend, Gavin no, Newsom, about his plan? And, and did you tell him you were frustrated? Mm -hmm. Yes, um, we've talked and he actually did a great move by making sure that 40% of all of our vaccines, and I don't know if other states have done this, but 40% of them are targeted now towards the most vulnerable. That's allowing us to be able to put that into zip codes with mobile teams. We actually deliver vaccines now to people in their homes and we're working with local community-based organizations. Um, but I look forward to when the federal regulations release our handcuffs and allow us uh, to target anybody in a hotspot. I think that is probably two, three weeks away. Um, and when we can do that, we can make sure, even as our numbers have plummeted here, some of our lowest hospitalizations in a year, that'll allow us, if there is anything that comes up quickly, go into a, the geography of a neighborhood, knock it down before it spreads throughout a city. When you say two to three weeks away, what are you talking about? Which restriction? Uh, I think that that is a time when we'll have enough supply to be able to have states and or the federal government to allow us to go into the hardest hit zip codes and just say, look, anybody, regardless of age, uh, can be vaccinated there. I want to ask you about this really troubling spike in hate crimes because your city has really experiencing, mm. experienced them when it comes to Asian Americans. Last year, you cut around $150 million from the police budget. Uh, because of these Black Lives Matter protests, you reprogrammed those funds. Do you need to push that money back to the LAPD so they can police this kind of t ethnic targeting? No, I think that's the wrong frame. We are reimagining public safety together with our police department. We know that things like hate crime need both a police response and education, a reporting mechanism, civilians and community-based groups that can help be the eyes and ears. And we have no tolerance for this hate here in Los Angeles, a great city filled with folks of Asian American and Pacific Islander descent. Um, and we have seen attacks so footsteps away from where I'm talking from you today. Uh, we had an attack here in Koreatown um, just a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And we are uh, putting together some of the best programs in the country. LAPD is absolutely part of that. But that no, that's absolutely the false uh, kind of dichotomy. For us, you need to make sure that there is a police officer to answer. And we have more patrols this year, even with cuts that every department, including mm -hmm. our police department, hit because of the fiscal crisis and also making investments in the human side of this to make sure community organizations are well-funded too. All right, Mr. Mayor, thank you for your time this morning. We wanna take a closer look at this specific issue uh, with this wave of racist attacks on Asian Americans. Illinois Democratic Senator Tammy Duckworth joins us now from Capitol Hill. Good morning to you, Senator. Good morning. Uh, you just heard uh, Mayor Garcetti talk about what's happening in his city. I want to ask you as well about what happened this week in Atlanta. Um, the FBI director, Chris Ray, says that local investigators, they've got the lead, but from where he sits so far, it doesn't look like these shootings were racially motivated. From where you sit, is he wrong? 
Well, from where I sit, I want to see a deeper investigation into whether or not these shootings and other similar crimes are racially motivated. It looks racially motivated to me, uh, but I'm not, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not a police officer. I'm not investigating the crimes. What I have done, though, is I have actually sent a letter to Director Ray and to um, Attorney General Garland asking for a deeper investigation into crimes that involve Asian Americans to see how many crimes have actually been underreported as hate crimes. We know that crimes against Asian Americans that have been categorized as hate crimes have increased by over 150% in our nation's major cities. That's over 3,800 additional crimes last year. But we also know that many of these crimes go underreported as hate crimes and are just classified as a mugging or harassment mm -hmm. or vandalism when they, really they were targeted at Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in particular. Earlier this month when Director Ray appeared before Congress, he was pressed on what he was doing. He said that the FBI is already trying to address this with training, liaison events. He said they put out intelligence reports about what's happening in the Asian community. What more does federal law enforcement need to be doing? And, and don't they already have a civil rights division dealing with these kind of crimes? Well, they do, but the problem is the crimes often are not reported as a hate crime or race-motivated crime at the scene with the local police officers because people just don't see Asian Americans as a minority group that gets attacked on a regular basis. Now, if you're Asian American like me and my family, you know it happens on a regular basis, but oftentimes these crimes just get reported in some other way. Or when you say, hey, I think it was race-motivated, it doesn't, the, the authorities don't pay attention to that and just reclassify them. And that is what I've asked Director Ray and uh, Attorney General Garland to take a deeper dive into. Let's, let's relook at all of these crimes involving Asian Americans and let's see how how bad is this underreporting. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about another dimension to this issue that I, I thought was raised uh, in an interesting framing by the Atlantic Journal and Constitution. They have a front page story saying before the killing spree in that city, Georgia let an industry that exploits Asian women flourish. Given the national conversation around commodification and exploitation of Asian women in this country, I wonder what you think of this idea. Were those women in Atlanta essentially being exploited and, and victimized twice? Well, I think that any time that you're part of a minority group, especially one with reduced power, you are much more susceptible to being exploited. And that's why I want us to take a deeper look at the situation here. Asian women in particular have been commoditized. Asian women in particular have this stereotype against them that they're weak and submissive, and they've been over-sexualized. And so what happens is that they become the victims of crimes far more often. I mean, these increases in hate crimes against Asian Americans in the last year, two-thirds of them were against Asian women. Mm -hmm. We really have to deal with this situation, but we need the real data as to what is going on here so we can fix it. The president on Friday endorsed uh, a bill I know you are a co-sponsor of, of called the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act. Um, all the co-sponsors are Democrats. Do you have any pledges from Republicans to sign on? We don't at this time, and it's astonishing to me. I mean, the House passed a bill that actually um, was a resolution against hate crimes against Asian Americans tied to COVID. Uh, and, you know, we had actually Republicans who voted against it. And Mitch McConnell at the time, because Republicans were in charge, wouldn't even let us vote on it in the Senate. I mean, how, where can you be that you would not be willing to vote on a bill that would condemn violence against any group of Americans? We will look for an answer to that question. Um, on immigration, I want to ask you, uh, President Obama, as you recall, was heavily criticized. He was even called the deporter in chief. 
President Biden now is coming under heavy criticism for this crisis at the U.S. border. From where you sit, does the administration need to send a stronger message to discourage migrants from making the trek to the U.S.? Well, let's let's make it clear. We have a situation at the border, and that is as a result of four years of failed policies, inhumane policies, and a systematic dismantling of the asylum system by Donald Trump. We all saw what Donald Trump can do in terms of damages in a single day on January 6th. And he's had four years to basically undermine our nation's uh, immigration system. But they're coming now. Right. But they, but you know what? It's as a result of him uh, dismantling the asylum system and the pathways to for seeking asylum that used to exist. I know that President Biden is going to be committed to repairing that system that Donald Trump broke in order to make it not only more uh, work better, but also to make it humane so that these kids and other migrants can actually apply for asylum in their home countries without coming here. You know, Donald Trump stopped aid to the Northern Triangle countries. He did everything he could to dismantle the system, which led to the crisis we're in now. Quickly. Secretary of Defense Austin was in Afghanistan this morning. In about 40 days, U.S. troops are scheduled to be pulled out. Do you think President Biden should leave a residual force and for how big and for how long? Well, I think that Secretary Austin is there taking a look on the ground, and I would listen to the military commanders. I've long said what we need to do is to eliminate the old AUMF, the authorization for use of military force, vote on a new one, but listen to the military commanders on the ground along with our allies. So I'm I'm really anxiously waiting to hear back from Secretary Austin what he finds in Afghanistan, what his recommendations are going to be. Again, uh, I want Mm. American troops to come home, but I also want to fight the bad guys over there instead of allowing them to come here. Senator Duckworth, thank you for your time this morning. Face the Nation will be back in a minute. Don't go away. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, the coldest case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. The Biden administration is faced with a growing crisis at the southern border as the number of unaccompanied migrant children in custody has now surpassed 15,000. Ohio Republican Senator Rob Portman toured several border facilities in Texas last week. He joins us from Cincinnati. Good morning to you, Senator. Good morning, Margaret. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you just heard the numbers. You heard your Democratic colleague, Senator Duckworth, lay this uh, at the feet of the last president. The problem right now is with this current administration. Their message this morning is a clear do not come. Will those words change what is happening? No. I mean, people are going to listen to actions uh, and watch actions and not listen to words. And, and I spoke to a number of migrants. I spoke to single individuals who were coming over at night, uh, men who told me that uh, they'd heard what 
President Biden said, and they were coming anyway because they could make a lot more, 10 times more in the United States. I talked to children and uh, talked to them about the messaging and what they're hearing is that you can now come into the United States, which you can as, as a kid. And so they're gonna keep coming. And the, the, the problem here is that the Biden administration on day one made about a half dozen changes and since then have made several more that encourage more people to come to the border and they didn't put anything in place to deal with it. Uh, either another policy to discourage people from coming, uh, which the president says he wants to do, or to put the preparations in place, including the shelters um, and the holding facilities that, are, that have been so criticized. And I saw some of them the other day. Kids are overcrowded. Uh, they're in situations you would never want your kid to be in. And so it, it's irresponsible. And you know they say, well, it's more humane. I don't think it's humane to encourage kids to make this treacherous journey north and then have to live in these kind of conditions. So, so we need to change course. Specifically on that issue of children, you know, the Biden administration has kept the Trump administration policy that, that Title 42 of during the pandemic pushing people back across the border without due process because of this pandemic, but they are allowing children to stay. Are you saying children should be expelled even if they're trying to seek asylum? Well, it's not so much a matter of expelling kids. It's a matter of telling them that they're not going to be able to come across the border during the public health crisis. And well, yes, they're I in think U.S. custody because they're not being expelled. Well, exactly. So, so now it's a different situation. But what I'm saying is that we ought to put in place the provisions that were in place previously while we prepare ourselves. I mean, I think there are five things that we can, we can do and should do right away. Uh, one is help the Border Patrol. They're overwhelmed. Finish the small parts of the wall that haven't been completed because it's silly. You've got openings in the wall that's making the Border Patrol job impossible. Provide the technology for them, even more important than, than the wall. Second, stop the magnet of, of work by putting a mandatory E-Verify system in place. Uh, and then third, let's deal with this asylum issue in a, in a much more logical way. Uh, let's have rapid adjudications at the border. This was a pilot program started in the Trump administration. It was stopped. Uh, let's put that back in place. Let's put the resources into that so people can find out right away. Do they, do they qualify or not? Right now, mm -hmm. as you know, it's four or five, six years before they, they know. Meanwhile, they're living in the United States. We know that only about half of them even show up for their court cases. No wonder they're in the United States for, for, for several years. And at the end of the day, only 15% of them uh, qualify. So it's, it's a bad situation. Finally, in terms of the third country agreements yeah. that the Biden administration ended right away, let's allow those, these kids to seek asylum and families and individuals in their country of origin, but also in third countries. So as an example, if you're in Honduras and you're coming up, you can apply in Guatemala or you can apply right. in Mexico. That makes a lot more sense. So encouraging these kids to come is not a humane thing, and it's certainly overwhelming our system. So there, well, there's I a much better way to do this. Specifically, let me ask you about one thing in particular the White House is asking for. They want $4 billion in aid over the next four years, a billion a year for Central America to help the countries of origin basically keep their people within their own borders. You have oversight. Is that a reasonable number? Probably. I mean, let's face it, Margaret, we've spent $3.6 billion, so roughly that amount in the last five years in those three countries with Northern Triangle alone. So El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. Uh, there's a lot of corruption down there. They've also had issues and natural disasters, including uh, the hurricanes. So, you know, it, it hasn't made much of a difference in terms of the poverty rates. It's a little better. Uh, and of course, we should work on that. Everything I talked about earlier was sort of to stop the pull factors, because mm -hmm. there are obviously millions of people around the world who would love to come. So you need to reduce the pull factors. On the push factors, I'm for that, but it's going to take many years, some say a decade, to make any substantial difference. So let's begin the process, but let's be sure we do two things. One, let's tie that aid to them helping us in terms of the asylum process. 
and working through this issue that otherwise overwhelms our system. And second, let's tie the aid to actually dealing with the corruption and make sure that there, there is transparency, mm -hmm. there, there is a, an adherence to the rule of law, so that we can actually make the fundamental changes in these countries to be able to help those people rather than just sending more okay. money down as we, as we have been doing. Very quickly, will you press DHS to give journalists access, yes or no? Absolutely. I mean, this should be transparent. I mean, it, it's you. amazing to me how little my constituents know about what's going on down along the border. And it yes. is a situation spiraling out of control. Thank you. As the uh, Rio Grande Valley sector chief just yeah. said uh, in, in a tweet yesterday, there is no end in sight. I mean, this is not fair to the Border Patrol and others within our immigration system trying right. to deal with it. And there are things that can and should be done to deal with it. And I hope the Biden right. administration will do that. Senator Portman, I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. On our new episode of Facing Forward, I spoke with the founder of the world's largest hedge fund, Ray Dalio. A new episode drops every Friday. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. We'll be right back with former chief advisor to Operation Warp Speed, Dr. Monsef Slawi, and former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Say goodbye to performance-robbing engine deposits with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Hate to break it to you, but lower-grade fuel can leave deposits in your engine that build up over time and leave your engine's performance severely lacking. Thankfully, Shell V-Power Nitro Plus removes up to 100% of performance-robbing deposits with continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors. Download the Shell app today to find your nearest Shell station and rejuvenate your engine with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Fuel up at Shell. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We want to take a look at the COVID situation around the world. Senior foreign correspondent Elizabeth Palmer reports from Tel Aviv. Margaret, good morning from Israel, which leads the world in vaccinations. 80% of the people over 60 here have been immunized. The UK is doing well too. Nine out of 10 adults over 65 have now had a shot. At the hospital where he almost died of COVID a year ago, Prime Minister Boris Johnson got his. I literally did not feel a thing. But in mainland Europe, things are going from bad to worse. Its COVID death toll passed the million mark on Friday and infections are surging. Parisians rushed to leave the city before a new lockdown put a stop to travel as of this weekend. Those left behind will be able to meet outside for exercise, but not much else. The vaccine rollout in Europe has been slow, plagued with politics, supply problems, and last week a shutdown in the use of AstraZeneca's vaccine because of an alleged link to blood clots. Regulators say there's nothing to worry about, but this facility in Germany shows the fallout. Plenty of vaccine, just no customers. Scientists say this mess will cost thousands of lives. Also struggling is Brazil, where authorities closed Copacabana Beach in Rio. With infections rising, almost 3,000 Brazilians died of COVID-19 on Friday alone. And finally in Mexico, public health in action. Wrestlers took masks to the maskless. Resistance was futile. Here in Israel, the effect of the mass vaccinations is clear. Deaths are down to under 10 a day, and the economy has pretty much fully reopened. Margaret? Liz, thank you. 
As part of our continuing efforts to learn from experience in terms of the coronavirus pandemic, we spoke Saturday with Dr. Mansif Slawi, the former chief scientific advisor of Operation Warp Speed, the vaccine development effort under the Trump administration. President Biden has said that the Trump administration had not contracted for enough vaccine doses when he took office. As recently as a month ago, Biden blamed the Trump administration, saying America had no real plan to vaccinate most of the country. My predecessor failed to order enough vaccines, failed to mobilize the effort to administer the shots, failed to set up vaccine centers. That changed the moment we took office. Is that fair? I think that's a very negative description of the reality. I do think that uh, we had plans. And in fact, 90% of what's happening now is the plan that we had. Uh, of course, the first thing was to accelerate the development of the vaccine. We contracted specifically 100 million doses of vaccine, but also built into the contracts options to acquire more vaccines once we knew they are effective. And the plan was to order more vaccines when, when we knew they are more effective. So I think what's happening is right, but I think what's happening is, frankly, what was the plan, substantially what was the plan. You say 90 percent of what's happening now is what you put into place? I think in terms of manufacturing and supply and distribution, which is the physical shipment of vaccine to immunization site, the answer is yes, because there's a ramp up in manufacturing, as always happens, and that's what we are experiencing and seeing. I do think that in terms of immunization and shots in arms, in particular, the large vaccination sites in, you know, sports arenas and, and the likes, uh, and the participation of FEMA, those were not uh, parts of the plan, and they are participating to accelerate, I think, to some extent, the immunization. But the bulk of vaccine distribution is happening uh, in the healthcare centers and now in the pharmacies, and that was all part of the plan. Where do you think that there were flaws in, in this strategy? Because certainly on the vaccine rollout, we hear from governors, we hear from those who have to do this last mile of administering it, that there were problems, that there still are problems. I think we have failed to communicate the fact that vaccine doses availability is going to be, you know, uh, slow over time because, because we went so fast. There is no stock of vaccine. It was impossible to have enough vaccine doses quickly enough compared to the expectations. So we were unable, as we communicated in the month of November and December and January, to, to manage the expectation. In the actual immunization, the approach taken was a philosophical approach that was, frankly, part of what the previous administration philosophy is, which is the federal government is going to provide vaccine. The states should be accountable for actually immunizing. And that's, that's the principle on which we have worked. Clearly, there was a need for the states to actually learn, which they did in reality. And they, that's how improvements are happening now. And also for the central government to participate to that learning process and, and accelerate it. One of the things that President Biden did do was to get Merck, a competitor to Johnson & Johnson, to step up and help them uh, produce supply, to make up for their own shortfall. Did Operation Warp Speed have a manufacturing plan like that in place? So the discussion with Merck had started already prior to the new administration taking office. 
uh, including uh, discussions around uh, making available their facilities for definitely on the short term doing what's called the fill finish, which, which is the putting vaccines into the sterile vials, and then over a longer period of time to manufacture the bulk vaccine itself. And they have been completed under this administration, and I think it's very, very good. Just to clarify, was President Trump going to order Merck to do this? No. No, no, no. But we had discussion. The HSS uh, had discussions with Merck to come to an agreement to use Merck's facilities for uh, uh, pandemic purposes, yes. Do you think that President Trump's refusal to concede the election caused problems in the handoff to the Biden administration when it comes to vaccines? Things didn't start very quickly. I don't think there's been, in terms of execution and operations, I don't think there was any changes or delays. Maybe in terms of ownership and full understanding by the new administration of what was going on, uh, it's possible that it was um, not as, as fast as normally it should have been. What we are seeing now, Dr. Sawi, in our own CBS polling is that Republicans, particularly those under the age of 65, are showing hesitation to taking a shot in the arm. What do you attribute that to? I'm very concerned, very concerned that for political motivation, people decide to actually place themselves and the people around them in harm's way by refusing to be vaccinated. I think, I think we need to do every effort we can to explain to people that vaccines have nothing to do with politics. These vaccines are safe. They are highly effective. They're going to help them protect themselves and protect the people around them from the spread of this virus and, critically, from the potential appearance of new variants. Why do you think Republicans are now hesitant to take it? I, I don't know. It's beyond my rational thinking. I'm a scientist not a politician, but I would hope that uh, President Trump and others in the Republican Party should really work hard to engage more Republicans to accept to be vaccinated. President Trump has said he's taken the vaccine, but he chose not to do so on camera. Do you think that would have made a difference? I do think it makes a difference. I think uh, people project images and uh, can convey important messaging. The response to the virus continues to be a political issue. This week, Senator Rand Paul mocked Dr. Fauci for continuing to mask after he was vaccinated. If we're not spreading the infection, isn't it just theater? No, it's not. You had the vaccine and you weren't too masked. Isn't that theater? No, that's not. Here we go again with the theater. Do you think people who've been vaccinated need to still wear masks? I do think as long as the herd immunity levels have not yet been attained, that people who have been vaccinated should continue wearing a mask when in public and in crowded areas, because what we don't know yet is whether the vaccine prevents replication of the virus. It's an act of, frankly, you know, civility, I would say, vis-a-vis -vis the people around us who have not yet been vaccinated. So, yes. Do you feel like you're stigmatized for having worked for the Trump administration? With time, the one thing I want to focus on is I feel extremely fortunate to have been able to help and participate to uh, allow us to have vaccine. 
and control this pandemic. That's the only thing that counts. Uh, there were moments, frankly, where I told myself, oh my God, why did I get myself into this? But they never lasted long uh, because the, the mission is way more important than, than, than those emotional m moments. I do believe that it's a mistake to politicize a health issue. It's a big mistake. Many people probably have died or suffered because the whole situation became so political that, uh, you know, emotions overtook rationality. Senator Elizabeth Warren took aim at you because you had worked for Moderna, a company that was part of Operation Warp Speed. You then went and you sold your stock in the company. So this came at a cost to you, but you're saying you think it was worth it? It did come at a very significant financial cost to me, to be honest, and uh, it is worth it. I had major issues with Senator Elizabeth Warren because, as I told her in a video, I don't know you and therefore I don't judge your values. You don't know me. You can't decide because I was a pharmaceutical executive that I am a corrupt person and I'm doing this to make money because that's I know that's not the case. Uh, and I worked for nine months, day and night, I wasn't paid. I didn't ask to be paid. I didn't want to be paid. I sold my shares in Moderna. The one thing I decided I didn't want to do was my selling my shares in GlaxoSmithKline. But I agreed to give any gains if they were to happen to research. I couldn't do more than that. Um, and frankly, now uh, it's behind me. The one thing that counts is we have vaccines, and I'm glad I was part of the team that helped deliver that. Bottom line, do you think America is prepared for the next pandemic? And what do you think needs to be done differently now by the current administration? We have to be better prepared. And the, the preparedness, in my view, should in particular include availability of manufacturing capabilities, which means manufacturing sites, manufacturing equipment, and manufacturing people that are running the manufacturing of vaccines on an ongoing basis. We should be having laboratories and manufacturing sites dedicated to discovering, developing, manufacturing and stockpiling vaccines, even if they are not useful now, against known potential pathogens that can be pandemic agents. I think it's imperative. I think it's a matter that may cost 500 million or a billion dollars a year. It's a drop in the ocean compared to the cost of the pandemic on a daily basis. Dr. Slawi, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Our full interview with Dr. Slawi is on our website at facethenation.com. We go now to former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He sits on the board of Pfizer as well as Illumina, and he joins us from Westport, Connecticut. Good morning to you. Good morning. Um, we, when we spoke last Sunday, you were very concerned about New York City and this new variant, 1526, that's been circulating. You said you would be very cautious. What do we know now? Well, I'm still concerned about it. We're seeing cases and hospitalizations go down across New York, so that's a good, good sign, although testing has also plummeted. When you look in certain parts of New York, Brooklyn, parts of Queens, parts of Staten Island, the positivity rate's approaching 15%. So you're seeing a lot of infections surging in pockets of New York City. 
What we don't understand with 1526 is whether or not people are being reinfected with it and whether or not people who might have been vaccinated are now getting infected with it. One of the concerns about this particular variant is that it has that mutation that's also in the South African variant, in the 1351 variant, that we know in certain cases is causing people who have already had coronavirus to get reinfected with it. And so the question is, is whether 1526 is responsible for some of the increases that we're seeing in New York right now and whether this is the, the beginning of a new outbreak inside the city. We're just not very good right now at collecting the cases and linking it back to the clinical experience. So we need to step in much more aggressively and start sequencing cases, especially people who report that they either were previously vaccinated or already had COVID. When you say we, you mean the CDC? Who needs to do that? The CDC, I mean, they need to work with the New York City Public Health Department, but the city alone isn't going to have the resources to do this on a systematic basis. Um, I think they're going to step in and start to do that, but they need to be aggressively marketing to doctors, asking doctors to come forward and report cases where they're seeing situations where people who were previously infected with COVID may be getting reinfected. We don't know that's happening, but anecdotally, some doctors are reporting that now, and that could potentially explain why you're seeing an upsurge in cases. It could just be that, you know, 1526 and B117 is becoming more prevalent and that's responsible in and of itself but you want to make sure that it's not reinfecting people right now more than 50 percent of the infections in new york we know are with variants and b1 b1 1526 is the most prevalent variant right now we're probably undercounting it because we're biasing our our screening our sequencing towards b117 so we're probably missing cases of b1526 right now it's probably more prevalent than what we're detecting when it comes to B117, the variant first detected in the UK, Dr. Fauci said this week it's about 30% of US infections. And it's, what, 50% more transmissible. It's also potentially more lethal. When you see these pictures of these spring break gatherings in Florida and elsewhere, does that make you rethink your projections here and worry about a fourth wave? Well, I don't think we're going to have a fourth wave. I think what we're seeing around the country is parts of the country that are plateauing, and we're seeing upticks in certain parts of the country. I think the fact that we have so much prior infection, 120 million Americans have been infected with this virus, the fact that we've now vaccinated, we've gotten one shot in at least 70 million Americans, even if you account for the fact that maybe about 30% of the people being vaccinated previously had COVID, we're talking about some form of protective immunity in about 55% of the population. So there's enough of a backstop here that I don't think you're going to see a fourth surge. I think what you could see is a plateauing for a period of time before we continue on a downward decline, in large part because B117 is becoming more prevalent, in large part because we're pulling back too quickly with respect to taking off our masks and lifting the mitigation. But I still don't think that it's going to be enough to create a true fourth wave. If you look at in Europe where they're having a true fourth wave, they've only vaccinated one in, one in nine adults. Here in the U.S., we've vaccinated one in three. In the U.K., which is seeing consistent declines, they've vaccinated one in two. So the vaccination is going to be a backstop. And we're continuing to vaccinate about three million people a day right now. Well, Mayor Garcetti of Los Angeles was essentially saying that. But his hunch, it sounds like, is that uh, these variants of concern in California already ripped through his population, that that's just what they saw with the epidemic in January. What do you think of his thesis? It's probably right. Um, the, the two variants that we're tracking in California probably have already become epidemic in that part of the country. 
and they probably have a level of prior immunity in the population that you're not going to see a true fourth wave. You might see a tick up, but once you get 50, 60 percent of the public with some form of immunity, which is where we are in many parts of the country, there's not a lot of people left to infect. And um, again, we're vaccinating against that. So we're continuing to put protective immunity into the population. I do think that the fact that we've sort of taken our foot off the brake a little too early here, March was always going to be a difficult month. People want to lean forward, but we really should have waited till April. The fact that we've done that now probably means that we're probably going to plateau. Maybe we'll see an uptick in certain parts of the country. The only thing that can be a real game changer here is if we have a variant that pierces prior immunity, meaning it reinfects people who've either already been infected or who have been vaccinated, like the 1351 variant or the P1 variant, the one in Brazil. Now, those variants aren't epidemic in the U.S. They're just sporadic. But 1526, the reason why people are concerned about it, including me, is it could be such a variant. We need to figure it out. We don't know right now. We need to get better at determining these things. Dr. Gottlieb, thank you for your analysis. We'll be back in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Huggies Little Movers. Huggies knows that babies come in all shapes and sizes, and your tushies do too. That's why Huggies is the number one best-fitting diaper with its curved and stretchy fit and 12-hour protection against leaks. No matter what kind of butt you've got, you'll feel comfy while your baby's mushy little tushy wiggles and jiggles all around. Get your baby butt in the best-fitting diaper. Huggies Little Movers. We got you, baby. The number of unaccompanied minors at the U.S.-Mexico border this spring is on track to be the highest ever. CBS News correspondent Maria Villarreal has been covering the story from both sides of the border. We asked her to share what she's been seeing. Every day they see between two and three hundred people. Every day. As a journalist, you're taught to just report the facts. But riding in the back of a pickup truck along the banks of the Rio Grande River, provides perspective most people don't usually get. When you see a group of migrants... She's scared. There's more? Yeah, there's more coming. ...filled with children, babies, a 10-year-old boy traveling alone from Honduras. Said God, uh, God is watching over him. That's why he's not scared. It's hard to contain your emotions as a human. So he's 10? He doesn't know where his dad is. His mom is in Honduras. There's a family up there that's going to kind of watch over him. Fleeing violence, poor living conditions, and corruption in their home countries, many travel for months to get here. They are hungry, wet, and desperate for a chance to request asylum. A right afforded to everyone, no matter how they get here, by a United Nations treaty in 1951 and U.S. law in 1980. Well, this is one of the main crossing areas where they like to cross because it's it's very secluded out here. We embedded with local constables who are helping respond to the latest surge of migrants in South Texas. You have to be escorted to film. Because federal agencies won't allow media access to shelters or processing facilities. But you cannot be here. For decades, the border has been used as a pawn to push political agendas forward. But all efforts to find any kind of solution have failed. Local leaders on the ground, on both sides of the border, are tired of the federal government's inability to fix the system. Um, this is actually a church school that has now been converted into a shelter for migrants. Have a lot of people from a lot of different areas. Uh, one thing they have in common is they, they want to be able to have their chance to go into the U.S., ask for asylum. 
city governments, nonprofits, and faith-based organizations are once again bearing the brunt of this humanitarian crisis. So we just spoke with this family over here. She's six years old. They crossed the river. They'll be asking for asylum, and he said he wasn't scared. It is not about whether they should be here or not. They are here. So what we need to do is work together to care for them correctly. The Biden administration refuses to call this a crisis. Instead, they see it as a very serious challenge. But the word crisis is defined as a situation that has reached a critical phase. A sentiment we clearly saw from the back of that pickup truck along the banks of the Rio Grande. Our Maria Villarreal reporting from the U.S.-Mexico border. We'll be right back. That's it for us today. Thank you all for watching. Until next week. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti, Senator Tammy Duckworth of Illinois, Senator Rob Portman of Ohio, former Chief Scientific Advisor of Operation Warp Speed, Dr. Monsef Slawi, and former FDA Commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also broadcast on our digital network, CBSN. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.